we uh, talked today. I uh, did want to say one thing is I am really looking forward to getting back on our beautiful courtyard, aren't you? Fantastic. How many of you are really looking forward to getting back in our courtyard? Right. Keep those hands up. How many of you are willing to help us get that courtyard ready? Keep those hands up. <laughs> All right. So in uh, uh, June 20 is when we're going to be back out there. And one of the reasons why June 20 is that makes the most sense on our end in terms of making sure we're at full capacity to do it well out there. The Saturday before that, I'm going to host men's breakfast outside, real deal, together with my world-famous, actually it's Karen Mills' world-famous brunch eggs. I will make those for you because they're delicious and invite you to come together, fellowship, and immediately following that, we will be putting the sanctuary together. So if you are a guy, you're welcome to show up at 8. If you're just somebody who wants to help get the courtyard set up, come at nine o'clock and it'll not take that long maybe an hour or two to get it cleaned up and then we'll be good to go sound good okay all right we'll see you then all right so i want you to imagine uh you go ahead, go ahead and bring up my uh slides dar and it's going to look funny on your end but it's working right out here um there's a passage we're going to look at uh called uh, dry bones from ezekiel 37 very familiar story one of his most famous uh, passages from uh, this ancient prophet's book. But before we jump into the text, um, I wonder if you could imagine what it would be like uh, to be awakened um, and find that the person at your front door is bearing arms and their military vehicles, not our own military, but somebody else's, outside our door. And they're telling you, you need to put uh, as many items as you can get in the suitcase and you're leaving right now. And get your kids, whatever. Uh, don't bother with your animals. Uh, maybe if you, you're lucky, you could put your cat in your suitcase, but, but you're leaving right now. And so you realize that your life is on the line unless you do this right now. And you do your best to gather your stuff and your family and your belongings as best you can, holding everything you can. And you're taken out. You have no idea what's happening. You don't understand what's happening. You know that you are dealing with a foreign military presence right in front of your face. And you don't know, you have no idea what's taking place. You'd heard rumors that maybe there was some conflict, but you never could have imagined this. And suddenly you find yourself in your block and you're seeing your neighbors come out and you're all being marched out of your neighborhood. You don't know if there's some kind of natural disaster, gas leak, what is happening? They just keep marching you and they take you into transportation that's going to carry you away from your city that you love. And while you're thinking, oh, maybe they're just going to take us to American Canyon, they don't do that. Uh, they take you all the way to Elko, Nevada. Have you ever been to Elko, Nevada? You don't want to go to El Elko, Nevada, now do you? No, you don't, but that's where you end up, Elko, Nevada. And you don't know, it took you forever to get to Elko, Nevada, and all your neighbors are there, and all the, all the people in your community are there. There are thousands of you that have been displaced to Elko, Nevada, and there you are stuck. And together you're having this conversation, like, what the heck happened? And when we think about this kind of thing, some stories come to mind like the Jewish Holocaust in World War II certainly comes to mind, where that kind of thing actually really did happen. If you ever get the chance to go to D.C. and go to the Holocaust Memorial, you need to go through it. And the first part of it will be extremely sobering. Because you know how they get you up to the level, if any of you have ever been there, uh, to, to get to look at the museum? Uh, you enter into what looks like a rail car. 
And you'll look around, there's nobody really in line. So you get in the rail car and it's an elevator and uh, you're just standing around and thinking, okay, when's the guy going to hit the button? Maybe, maybe he doesn't know how to hit the button because you're standing there. No, but he's not doing anything. And they wait for a few more people to come. It's like, all right, well, they just stopped. Maybe they saw somebody at the end of the hall and they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait until you are packed in the rail car like sardines. And it's extremely uncomfortable. And then they hit the button because that's what it was like for the Jews in Germany and other parts during the Holocaust. So you might think in our own history, you might think about African-Americans or just Africans who were taken away from their home continent, uh, ripped away from their land, everything, brought to a new land where they were enslaved to help enrich our country so that we could have a strong enough financial situation so that we could become our own country and still help create everything <laughs> that we became. Maybe they're the ones who you think about, or we could go a little bit further than that. We could think about colonization in the United States. And as colonization happened, uh, we were the ones, our ancestors from Europe were the ones who pushed out the indigenous people and kept pushing them away. They could not come back home. But actually, if we go further back into the Jewish story, about 600 years before Jesus was born, this very thing happened. The Babylonians, who were the superpower of the day, uh, were rolling everywhere, rolling over everyone. And they made their way to Jerusalem, and they took pretty much everybody with them. They left just a remnant of people behind. Not enough people. Uh, number-wise, and not enough skill set to pose a threat uh, to Babylon. Just enough people to keep the place going and serve the Babylonians, actually, who <laughs> were, were uh, trans transplanted there. Everybody else went to Iraq, kind of close to Baghdad, Elko, Nevada. And they're there, and they're lamenting, and they're mourning about what is happening. They, they heard winds that it was happening, but they thought to themselves, how could this possibly happen to us? We're God's chosen people. And time went on. And they're looking at each other and thinking, nothing is changing here. Fifteen years after they were removed from their homes, they get terrible news. Napa has been burned to the ground. Your homes are gone. The city, gone. Heritage Eats, gone. <laughs> All of your favorite places completely wiped out. Of course, I'm not talking about Napa. I'm talking about Jerusalem. The city was leveled. Whatever hope you had about going to your home and open the door and grabbing a cool one out of the fridge and binging on Netflix for another evening or watching Giants baseball. I noticed, however, that the Giants have been doing very well since I've been off. So if they start to go south, we know what to do. <laughs> Can you imagine? Now all of your hopes that you had of returning to home, returning to normal, wiped out. There's no there there to return to. This is what Ezekiel and other Jewish exiles were experiencing. 
And it was from this experience that Ezekiel wrote his book. He's called a prophet. That's one of the larger prophets uh, in terms of volume, in terms of how much he wrote. And he's well known for some of his vivid stories and visions that he talks about. He also asked the questions, well, I won't go too far into now, but I need to, uh, just a, a touch on it, because he asked the question, how is it that this happened to us in the first place? Why did God let us down? Do we, what, what, what could we have done differently to keep God on our side, perhaps? Did we anger God? Will God be angry with us forever? These are questions that, that Ezekiel asks. And actually, in his letter, and by the way, almost all the prophets say exactly the same thing as Ezekiel does to the people. He's saying to Israel, he's saying, yeah, you did get off track. You got off. Uh, you, weren't, you weren't following God the way that we were supposed to. We had this covenant, and you blew the covenant. And perhaps if we would have kept the covenant alive and done right by it, maybe we wouldn't be in this mess. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know uh, that the way Ezekiel was saying is things would have been different if we would have kept the covenant. And you know how he evidenced whether or not they lived out being the people of God? You know what the, the evidence was for them? It wasn't worshiping foreign idols. The evidence of whether or not they were following God well was, how well have you taken care of the most vulnerable among you? The widows, the orphans, the foreigners. And how well have you managed the gap between the richest and the poorest? I'm not making this up. It's there. Prophet after prophet after prophet talks about it. In Ezekiel, other places, the uh, book of Amos is really funny. He, he uses some very colorful language. Ezekiel uses some colorful imagery as well. He says, here's the deal. There are a lot of fat sheep in Israel. Oh, he uses the word fat sheep in Israel, which is a sign of wealth. And he said, you need to be ashamed of yourselves because there are starving sheep in Israel as well who shouldn't be starving. They're starving because you have eaten their food. So I just say that because that's how he's answering the question of how well are we walking with God? And we got to remember that the image that we're about to see and read together first and foremost, is a statement to the entire nation of Israel. While I'm going to take it to a very personal level, I'm going to bring it back uh, to the national, because that's the original context. So remember, this statement, this vision that we're going to see, is meant for all the people of Israel as a body politic. While it is so insightful for us on an individual personal level, we got to remember it was written for an entire nation to think through what does it mean to be the people of God. So here we go. Exodus 37, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 37, the first 14 verses. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. A couple interesting things I just want to point out here briefly. 
The image that we're seeing here, a valley of bones. Oh, that's really small print. Sorry about that. Uh, the valley of bones. You know what we're seeing here? We're seeing a battleground. We're seeing a battleground where Israel just got their butt kicked. Not just a long time ago. The valley is filled with the remains of Jewish soldiers who didn't make it. You know, we know from our own military, I think particularly the Marines, I think they're the most famous for it, probably because they're the ones who are on the front lines mostly in times of war, but they are famous for not leaving their dead behind because they don't want, first to honor our own uh, fallen, but they don't want to give the chance for the enemy to disgrace them further. More bodies than can be counted were on this valley floor. And they were so dried out and they were scattered, which means wild animals probably came and vied over their bodies and tore them limb from limb. It's a gruesome scene. Awful. And then God asked him, um, Do you think these bones can live? And when I read Ezekiel's answer, I thought, well, that's an interesting response. But you know what? I think Ezekiel had been around long enough, kind of like the disciples with Jesus, that when Jesus would ask a question they thought they knew the answer to because it seemed so obvious, <laughs> they'd learned enough times that when they got the wrong answer, Jesus would just say, oh, no, Peter, <laughs> that's not the answer. You know, I, he maybe was more kind than that. But I think Ezekiel was wise enough to say, God only knows because that's what he's saying. I don't know. I don't know if these bones can live. And then God says to him in this vision, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscle on you, muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord's. Now, I want to stop just a second and point out something. So if you can go back a screen uh, for me just to get us onto that awful valley scene. Go one more. There we go. Uh, just, to, just to spend a moment here. We're seeing a, a, a part of the story where the vision is remains. Remains of fallen soldiers uh, who couldn't make it anymore. And I find it interesting that, now well, it's a vision, right? So we can't get too excited on the one hand, we can't get super literal with the vision because it's a vision, you know, it's a dream. It's, we don't know exactly how it all came to, to Ezekiel. But on the other hand, it was given as this rich image to, for Ezekiel to ponder and for Jewish people to ponder forevermore. And so I think it is fascinating that when Ezekiel receives this image, he's not taken to a vista point. Do you know what a vista point is? If you go to Yosemite, you'll see lots of vista points it's where you can stand at a distance and kind of take the whole scene in. That could have happened. It could have been that way, where God just puts him at a vista point and says, see all the bones over there? There's all the bones. Let's go get some lunch now. That's not how it happened. Ezekiel was led down into the valley to walk around to see just how dry they are to see that they've been scattered, that there's nothing left, that the bodies are all mixed together because of what the animals in time have done. And I want to say something to you about that. 
But I think there's value in spending time reflecting about that. Because I think our normal human defensive tactics to protect ourselves when we go through painful times is to stay at the vista point. But we can't really appreciate what is going on unless we go into Skeleton Valley. We need to go and see what is happening. And frankly, that was part of my journey. As I knew I was fried, but I didn't really understand what was going on. I knew that internally, emotionally, I was evidencing signs of early depression. And I was like, that is not normal for me. And feeling of dread, which is not normal for me. Uh, my wife will tell you I'm, I annoy her with my optimism. <laughs> she, she can tell me the sky is falling and I'm saying, you just got to turn that thing upside down. <laughs> now it's not falling, it's going right back up. That's me all the time. Somebody uh, said that sort of our vibe as a church is Ted Lasso, but if you've ever seen that, well, I kind of take that as a compliment because Ted Lasso is one of the most optimistic, positive guys on the planet. And that I like to be that way. And I try to be that way. And so when I wasn't that way, it, it messed with me. And so for the first couple of weeks, literally from April 26 until May 12, my time was spent on that vacation. It wasn't all fun and games for me, unfortunately. But fortunately, uh, it was walking through Skeleton Valley and just seeing what was there. And I got to tell you, it was not fun. It was painful to see things I didn't want to see, to process through things that I wish weren't there, uh, things about the way I'd been seeing the world, things about imbalance, not great things, not things that I would want people to know because they just let me know how human I am. But then there were also other things that showed up as I was thinking about this, which is reality also. As you know, in this valley of dry bones, it took a long, long time for those fallen soldiers to end up like this, just dry bones. It took a long time for me to get to where I was. Um, you know, when Mer I was talking to a friend one time and he was talking about his son who uh, was in pretty good shape and ran his first marathon and thought he trained well. But when he got to the end of the marathon, his son collapsed in his arms, was exhausted physically, but then just wept uncontrollably. Because it's not just physical, this life. And sometimes when we go through a very long stretch that requires us to keep going and going, we should expect nothing less than to feel exhausted physically, emotionally, mentally. That's where I was. And my friend Matt, who is a colleague, uh, fellow pastor, chaplain with, uh, well, heads up chaplaincy stuff at Kaiser in Sacramento, and such, such healing words for me, just to reframe that to help me see uh, and take a little easy on myself, because I like to beat myself up on this. All this is just to say that I don't know what your life situation is, but I am sure you have your own skeleton valleys. 
And sometimes we want to stay at the Vista point and just wonder when is it all going to go away? And I, and maybe time will heal a lot of stuff for us. I think it kind of does. It makes us numb to it anyway. I don't know if it really addresses it. But here's what I can tell you, that when we, when we risk and take, take the courageous steps, and I say courageous, not to pat myself on the back, because that's not it, but because it's scary. <laughs> it is hard to go look at things. And when we actually do that, we start to see things. And when we start to see things and clarify things, then we can address those things. Before we do, it's just this massive big ball of yarn that just has its own weather system and can mess with us and its own gravity that will take us wherever we go. And it's very difficult for us to deal with something that's that big and tangled. It's very difficult for us to process a valley of dry bones. But if we go in, and start to see and look and wonder and ask questions. It helps. And I got helps with that. Um, just as God was with Ezekiel in this vision, God was with me. And I knew that. I, and I, I knew that even though I wasn't feeling as connected as I had before, I knew that was mostly my wiring and my need to heal and move through a season, which was going to be difficult. But I also got help from a counselor who helped me look at the Valley of Dry Bones well. Got help from friends like Matt, and some of you also shared your story with me, which was so meaningful. And uh, I got help from books, because I love to read, and that was helpful. My journal wore that sucker out. I don't know if you can wear out a digital journal, but I tried. And very helpful, because that became a place to get the stuff to take a look at the bones on paper. And I just have to tell you, I know that there's research on this, but when we put pen to paper and write things out, it does more than waste ink. It helps free things up. So I did that, and that was so incredibly helpful for me. All right, so Valley of Dry Bones. Let's see what happens. On the next, on the next screen, uh, God says he's going to do something. Uh, speak this message. So Ezekiel says, so I spoke this message. Just as he told me, suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Just want to stop there for a second and, and think about what we're seeing here. Now, first of all, I think I'd freak out if I saw this, wouldn't you? I mean, come on, what is happening and what's going to happen once these things, you know, start to come up? I mean, talk about zombie apocalypse. I mean, maybe that's partly where it comes from. You know, Ezekiel, once he got unfreaked out, and as time went by, I wonder if he was able to process some of the things that we see here. There's just something I want to point out um, here very briefly, and that is this, that it wasn't a snap of the fingers. It wasn't Thanos snapping his fingers that wiped everybody out instantly. It wasn't Thanos or whoever it was that unsnapped the fingers and brought everybody back up, if you're into, uh, into sci-fi like I am. So it wasn't that at all. It took a long time for those bones to get to as dry a place as they were and as scattered as they were. And it took a process for those bones to come back together, for muscle and everything to form and for skin to go back on so that they looked like human beings again. This might sound really simple, 
but we don't like the idea that there was a process involved. We want it done now. I wanted to be over this the Monday after I left. <laughs> uh, but that's not how it works. It is a process of going into the skeleton valley and checking things out, but it's also a process that has to happen. You can't jump over. Richard Rohr says there's order, disorder, reorder. And he says again and again in multiple ways, and he brings out other language that other people have said the same thing. You can't jump from, from uh, order. You can't over. You can't fly over disorder. It's not a flyover state. You've got to go through it in order to get to reorder. You've got to go through that process of rebuilding. It doesn't just happen. And I can tell you that I had to walk through some things. I had to see some things about myself which were so important. You know, prophets, they're really truth tellers. That's what the prophecy means. It's not like, ooh, let me tell you your future. It's, it's this is the way reality is, people. That's what their purpose is in the Bible. And it's like the Spirit along the way was saying, this is the truth that I want you to think about. And I have to tell you that I couldn't move forward in my own healing until I took the step of seeing that, identifying it, writing it down and saying, yeah, that's, that's there. And the crazy thing is, sometimes the very next morning or sometimes the very next moment, as soon as I just said, I see this, it's like the next part of the reconstruction process started to come online. I think that's how human beings work. Sometimes we don't know what's happening. I just want to say that again. Uh, the Spirit of God works in all kinds of different ways, and sometimes time does things that we can't imagine. But even if you don't know it's happening, it's still a process. So that's all I want to say about that, is there was a process involved here. It didn't just happen. It was one thing that made sense that led to another in the vision. And I think we need to think about that about our own lives. All right, let's wrap this puppy up. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O oh my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. So this was a hopeful prophecy that was given. And in fact, it did happen. They did return and rebuilt Jerusalem. Uh, it took a while, uh, but they did it, and it happened. And they rejoiced that it happened. But it wouldn't have happened. Those bodies weren't going to get anywhere. They weren't going to get very far unless the Spirit of God was with them and in them. I think in our culture, as much as we like to say we're spiritual, I just wonder how deeply we breathe of that breath. And I have to tell you that life is spirit, period. 
if you think about it long enough, you know that this flesh and blood is not going to make it. And if you think about it long enough, you know that there is something more that is eternal that is going on in us and within us and around us, that we're a part of a bigger collective where everything really is animated by something other than simple biology and chemistry. That is the Spirit of God. And the Jewish theological tradition, it is the Spirit of God that brings creation to existence and sustains all of it, working together all the time. The fancy word for this is panentheism. Not pantheism, panentheism, where God is in and involved in all things all the time. And I'm wondering, we see here another process where there had to be a welcoming of the breath. And I know, at least for me, one of the challenges that I had over the past year was to take the time to welcome the breath. And then after a while, even if I took the time, I was so exhausted. It's like it, it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to regain my breath. So I needed to get away to just breathe and breathe the spirit anew. And I got to tell you that the words of David in that song, I resonate with because the spirit of God is active and alive and is with us, like my own experience, bringing me back. I'm not 100%. I've been advised, you know, to be extremely careful <laughs> with my boundaries and make sure that I am keeping balance well and prioritizing that. Uh, but man, I am so much further than I was. And May 12, I know Lynn was talking to Dar about this. May 12, after it was the, it was the third day of my personal retreat, uh, where through prayer, fasting for three days, uh, reading stuff I thought would be helpful, immersing myself in nature, journaling like crazy, being still quiet alone. On the third day is when it lifted. And I knew that there was great hope to be had. I was hopeful that that would happen, which I shared with you in the third week of April. And it did, and it does. And so I want to encourage you with that. And there's, this is not, I don't mean to be formulaic on any of this because it's not how it works. But I do believe that there are things that when we put them in place, do help foster a vital relationship with God that is our very source of life. And I'm asking you from my experience, uh, from a little taste of the abyss and a little darkness that I didn't want to go through, I want to ask you, where are you? And how many bones are in that valley? If there are any, I don't want to assume anything. And are you willing to take a look? Are you willing to embrace a process that will help put some things back together again? And most importantly, are you up for creating space in your life, which takes discipline? As the culture is not going to really encourage this. It's a, <laughs> you know, one of the feedbacks I, I got on my own journey was because uh, I said, man, I just, I hit, I hit the wall and just needed to, needed to break away. And, you know, this colleague said back, 
yeah, I went through that, but I just had to, I just had to plow through, tough, tough it out. And I was like, thanks for being so dismissive. Let's move on. <laughs> That's what our culture says. The culture says, stiff upper lip, ignore the pain, move on. And that led to how many World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam soldiers stuck in PTSD because they were not allowed to be in pain. So I got a little off track there, but the point is, will you allow yourself, will you build into your life? If you have struggles in these areas, will you give yourself the gift of room to breathe so that the very breath of life, the spirit of God might do its work anew in you? It might take a while for you to feel or sense anything. Good grief. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. <laughs> and it took 15 days before I really felt like there was significant progress. And I think that's fast. So I hope you will. The last thing to say here is just to, to recognize, um, again, that this vision, while it is so helpful on a personal individual level, it is meant for a nation. It's meant for an entire people. And we remember we remember what it looks like when it's done right, according to the covenant, where there's equity among people, where there's some who may have more than others, but not to the point of neglect and starvation. When will we know if our nation is more aligned with the very present and the heartbeat, presence and heartbeat of God? Maybe when those things uh, are the fruits of our efforts. Maybe that's when we know the Spirit of God is really at work. So let's spend a moment in silence um, just to have you sort out what the Spirit might be doing in you. Then we'll, we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. And then uh, whatever questions you have for me, um, I'll just hang out for a little bit uh, before I give you a benediction. All right. Close your eyes with me if you would. Just take another deep breath. I just want you to be present to all the stuff that I said uh, stuff that I didn't say, but you sense that maybe the Spirit of God uh, was saying to you. Maybe a word or two jumped out of the Scripture itself that I didn't touch on, but boy, they just jumped off the screen for you. Guess what I'm getting at is, what do you think the Spirit is saying to you this morning? What's the word for you today? And like, like Ezekiel, do you sense the Spirit inviting you uh, to move in any particular direction, take any particular action? light of what the Spirit has done in you, through you, with you today. What is your response to the invitation? What do you say to the Spirit of God today?
God, I know I am not alone. I know that there are millions of people, <laughs> hundreds of millions of people, especially over a year into the pandemic that have been through it. God, I am so grateful for this church and for the support and the love and the prayers and encouragement. I know that is a tremendous gift. And I do not take it lightly because I know that there are others, other pastors, but just people in general that don't have that kind of support and encouragement. And I pray for them. I pray your spirit will work through anyway. And I pray for this congregation now uh, that your spirit will attend to us. Well, you're already with us. Give us eyes to see you with us. You're already in us. Give us eyes to, and a sense to know that. Your breath is already at work in us. And I believe you want to take us on a healing journey as individuals, as families, as a congregation, as a nation. And so I pray that we'll, we'll make ourselves available to you for that. And trust that this is who you are. And to that end, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, which is all about that very thing. So hear our collective prayer, God, as we pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So that's the teaching, and formally, that's the service. And I want to give you the opportunity to ask anything, say anything, throw things at me. It's, a, <laughs> it's kind of a free-for-all. Or if you have to go, don't feel like you're... You know, we're going to laugh at you or something if you need to get out of here. I get that too. Any questions, thoughts, wonderings about things? Great job on the uh, annual meeting, by the way. Robert, man, you're the man. Way to go. That was incredible and inspiring. <laughs> Loved it. Daryl, sorry that he was incredible and inspiring. <laughs> My wife knows what it is to be the person that's being talked about. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bill. What steps did I take to accept help at a gut level? Great question. Well, the first thing, um, the first thing I did, I mean, I, I had the longer version of today. Believe it or not, what I just gave you was the short version. <laughs> uh, hard to believe. Uh, but anyway, um, in the longer version, I talked about how in 12 steps, you know, there has to be this admission of a problem. So the first one was I recognized in myself and didn't say anything, even to my wife, about what I was feeling. Um, until, uh, until the day after Easter when she and I got away and I said, man, I'm just, I'm just feeling, and this described what I'm feeling. She was like, that's not you. That's, this is something you've got to look like. She's been concerned for me throughout the pandemic because she knew where I was energy wise going into the pandemic. She knew those, uh, especially the first three months of the pandemic were unbelievable. So I think the first thing was 
saying it out loud to myself, this thing is a monster. It's eating me alive. Saying it to my wife, so my support loved ones, hearing her say, what are you going to do about this? And my wife was not <laughs> going to let me do nothing about it. And that, and so we detailed and that little getaway to Sausalito about, all right, well, this is, this is what I'm going to do. I know I'm, I know who I want to call in terms of a, con, a counselor to help me out. Uh, I know I need to meet with the board uh, soon and talk about what I'm going through. I probably need to let the wider church know if that makes sense, which I felt it did. Uh, and then started to detail out a process. So as soon as I called the counselor, then he put me on a course, a reading material, things to think about, questions to ask, and a regular meeting time with him that we could process this all out. So those were those were the, the, the early steps and the structure of what I went through. And I knew that I needed to have um, a mixture of being out of space, out of this space, um, so the first thing we did was go away for a few days uh, to a pretty place and just hang out and be in creation. So uh, we found a, a deal at a place that we've been to before in Monterey and uh, went to the state parks down there and walked a lot of oceanfront and just breathed a lot of fresh air uh, together, Lynn and I. Um, but then later on, you know, I, I knew that, and Lynn knew this, in fact, right out of the gate, she was like, maybe you and I shouldn't go to Monterey. Maybe you should just go to Monterey because she knows that I need solitude. And I was like, no, nah, I want to, let's ease into this in a pretty place together and work this out. So then I scheduled a retreat later um, in solitude at a retreat center that a friend of mine runs. And uh, that was a meaningful part of it because I need, I need that solitude at some point. Great question. I answered that so long. I wonder if there are any questions left. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I remember sharing um, this illustration many years ago. I'm sure you all remember it. But I had this, uh, I had this jar up here, this glass jar, and I had a series of rocks. Um, and there were some big rocks, really big rocks. There were some medium-sized rocks, and there were some really small rocks, and then some sands. And uh, I invited some people to come up and try to fill, fill the jar uh, with the rocks. And one after another, it was epic failure. Uh, and it was good fun to laugh at people struggling. Anyway, so uh, then I, I gave the secret uh, to filling uh, the jar uh, with, with, uh, with the rocks so you could get them all in because it didn't appear like they could all get in. And the secret is you put the biggest rocks in first and the second biggest rocks, third biggest rocks, and the smallest things on top, and it fits. And so for me, um, it's kind of a mixture of things. Because it wasn't like I totally abandoned um, my time with God, because that's just a part of my rhythm and my life. But I think I was at such an exhaustion level that it was easy to catch up on it later when it needed to be the first thing. It was also not enough um, because it was, it was just not enough. I was at the end of the marathon. And so one of the things I've reintroduced is, you know, a, a very, very, um, but non-legalistic way of saying that big rock uh, of connecting with God uh, daily, first thing, for as long as it takes, uh, that's priority number one, as long as it takes. And that's hard for me because I'm a, I'm a get stuff done kind of guy. So permission to do that and space to do that and freedom to do it in different ways 
that's been the, the biggest thing back in there. And then that gets to some boundary things. So I reread the boundaries book. I know uh, I've talked to Lauren and Lisa Haas about that book, um, which is great. It's very, very easy to read. I think it's good reading for all, uh, but it was helpful for me uh, just to recognize uh, where I let some boundaries slip. Uh, when I had said yes as a compliant person uh, and should have said no, <laughs> uh, that got me into trouble. Um, so being able to step that back with a, with a fresh slate and, and decide this, this is where that boundary needs to be. And by the way, that, you need to know that's, that's important in terms of how I think about my role because a lot of my role here uh, is thought, creativity, that kind of thing. And I have to protect that. And then there's administrative things that nobody but me can do. So the things that nobody but me can do, I have to protect and make sure that nobody but me is doing them. Because there are some, you actually, I actually have a job description, <laughs> right? And then there are some things that, uh, and those things, generally, frankly, I do them best if I'm in isolation. In fact, if I'm at a place where I am easily, um, interrupted, which is basically here any time of the day, um, that doesn't work uh, because creative process is the creative process. And while it might just be a five-minute hello, as much as I love it, it takes way more than just a split second to get right back into the same level of research, headspace, or creative thought, or whatever. It, it takes almost 20, I mean, there's been studies on this. It can take 20 to 30 minutes to get back to where you were before the real brief interruption. So what that means is, is I'm going to protect my solitude so that I can get those things done that I must get done while still having room for me to be present to you for whatever other pastoral things you might have me do, because that's another massive part of my role that I love. The fact is, I want to be fully present to you. And if I don't protect that boundary on those things, I will not be able to be fully present to listen to you well and to help you and pray for you appropriately. So if you need to see me for anything, just reach out to me and we'll, we'll set a time up and I will make that time happen. Uh, I'll be on campus, um, but not all the time because that doesn't make any sense, uh, but I'll, I will be here. Uh, but if you want, actually wanna to talk to me, the best thing always like any other professional in your life, be it your chiropractor, your doctor, uh, your dentist, your therapist, make an appointment because then we can work at a, a time that makes sense together. So those are, I, I probably said more than that, but that's kind of what I think the right answer is for the full answer. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I think I want to hear your idea first. Take off your mask so we can hear you a little better. You've been vaccinated. You're safe. Let's hear it. Yeah. Oh, that's so rich. I didn't even go there. It's so rich. I think you're right, Ann. So rich. Yeah, we are, we're always involved. We're, we're meant to be involved in the process. It's a gift to be involved in the process. And being able to say out loud the thing that we need to say out loud in cooperation with the Spirit of God 
that's that's open and relational theology right there uh and that's that's a beautiful insight yeah that's a better sermon than i preached thank you <laughs> well done well done yeah other questions thoughts wonderings yeah matt Yeah. Nope. There's no other way, Matt. It's just uh, holding on. No, it's not. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you speak from experience in that uh, in that world. Um, I'm so glad that you brought it up uh, because I'm a performer and I will, I, I will very easily get back into old grooves, which is not healthy. Um, you know, about a year ago, I think at our, one of our first board meetings with the new board, um, I, to help orient particularly new board members uh, on to what was happening and to give some clue about some things I was thinking, um, one of the things that I said uh, to them was, we need to be thinking of now about when I'm not the pastor of Crosswalk. Not that I see that on the horizon anytime soon, I don't. But I am the longest term pastor this church has ever had, by far. And sometimes whoever's next is a sacrificial lamb. And it does not work out and it does not go well. And I do not want that to happen. So I've already been thinking about what must change for us going forward. And one of the things that must change is I've given strong leadership uh, over my tenure here, and we've seen a lot of change together. We've seen a lot of change, but I think the new face of what Crosswalk needs to be is a much more congregationally engaged uh, community of faith. And one of those areas that ate my lunch, you know, for good reason, but also not good reason, was facility stuff. And I'm so grateful because Ed Edwards, uh, in a weak moment, uh, said he would uh, take, take on this leadership of organizing, not doing it all, but organizing teams of people to do facility stuff. So thank you. Yeah. And once you said it out loud, you were in the walls of a church. It is done, man. There is no turning back for the rest of your life. So we, we appreciate that. But I really do appreciate that. And we need to think about that with so many different ways. Um, I love the creative process, we, and we already have examples of that. How the food pantry runs is marvelous. <laughs> we need all the different ministries of the church to follow similarly appropriately. You know what I mean? So, you know, I, and I've wanted to for some time to think how can we get uh, more people engaged in the worship creation process. And so if you're a creative thinker that way, how can we make this more engaging and all that? How can we get more voices on the stage? I desperately want that. So if you like to think in those ways, I want you on the team. If you're terrible at thinking about that, I don't want you to do anything like that out of guilt. <laughs> but if you're good at it and have a passion for it, then yeah, we, we want to welcome that. And our children's ministry, all across the board, I, I think that, I, mean, I know that the model for how we think about children's ministry and youth ministry has to be completely different than it has been in the past. 
especially because of who Crosswalk is. And I think it's going to be different in the way it plays out on campus. And I think it's going to be very different and very exciting about the way it's going to engage already existing, very powerful things happening in the community where we come alongside to support incredible work that's already been done just as the voice of a representation of, of one facet of the kingdom of God. But we need a team uh, to think about that. And I know we've got some folks that are, that are in on that. So the, uh, the, the real answer is you're absolutely right, Matt, that um, the best hope for Crosswalk going forward is for us to diversify um, the, the shared experience, leadership, all that. I know what I'm good at, and I want to work really well on that and give that the time it deserves because when I'm doing other things that I probably shouldn't, it takes away from that. Generally, just a little, a little clue, uh, when I give a lousy sermon, uh, it's probably because I ran out of time. Uh, ones that I, are pretty good that you can walk away thinking, that oh, was pretty good. That's uh, because I had the time uh, to do it right. And so I got to protect that, and that's, that's part of it, is making sure I don't burn out. That way, whenever that day comes, uh, when you feel and I feel and we feel and the Spirit of God seems to be saying, uh, it's time for a new chapter at Crosswalk, and we're, I'm hoping that's going to be a pleasant kind of a thing, then we will, my hope, really, I've, I've told this to my counselor and I mean it, my hope is that this church will be profoundly healthier than we are now. We're healthy. We're a healthy church. We're doing amazing things. But I also, my hope is that it will be such a smooth transition that it's like it'll be Pete who <laughs> after I'm gone. I mean that because that to me would be the greatest sign of a successful transition is when it's just past the baton and let's just see this thing fly. That, to see Crosswalk become so much more than it can under my leadership, ah, oh, that is the dream uh, for me uh, because I'm not it. I'm not, I'm not the end all. Yeah, Bruno. Awesome. Thank you, Bruno. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think our reputation in the community is stellar. Um, awesome. Love it. Uh, I, think, I think the area that we could really use some help on uh, that's going to need a lot of heads on the many areas we can improve on everything, but I'm really concerned about our sense of community and creating um, groups of community where they're real life happening, you know, where we're really doing life together. Um, I think we can be... Um, more effective in ways that we need more heads thinking about it uh, in terms of how we, because of who Crosswalk is and who we reach, how do we help people uh, engage 
faith in a way that represents crosswalk in our theology uh, and does it well. I mean, we, we do it. We have different things that obviously work because we have new people that come in and, and grow and all that. But I think we need to rethink some things. And that may be how we rethink how we do our services or when we do them. Um, it's been a change world for a long time. And I know that we lose, we have lost and will continue to lose young families because the things that their kids are doing are on Sunday morning. And we got to figure out an answer to that. And it's not to guilt them to having their kids not do BMX or baseball or whatever, or else God's going to be unhappy with them. We got to figure out what does it look like uh, for us to help them, serve them, support them, and helping their children uh, know what this God thing is all about. And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, there are some models out there, but I don't know the answer. So we need more, more, more heads on deck. Anybody else? Carrie? Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't, well, my friend, um, Timothy Locke, he's, a, he's an ordained Presbyterian pastor and also a Jungian psychotherapist uh, who practices in Napa. Uh, he's the interim pastor of a Presbyterian church in Fairfield somewhere. He is an, a wonderful human being. Uh, if you're looking for a therapist, I highly recommend him. He's just wonderful. Um, he's, he's not the therapist I'm working at. He's just a good friend and colleague. Uh, but he has been the executive director of Four Springs uh, Retreat Center up in, above Middletown uh, since 1997 or so, somewhere in there. Um, so I just called him up before, over the year, he's made the invitation to not just me, but any any clergy, because he's on that group. Uh, if anybody needs to get away, it's beautiful. And he's right, it's a, it's a beautiful setting. Um, I pretty much had the, the place to myself. Uh, so that was great, because I really wanted just to be able to hear nature. <laughs> and except for one other guy who was doing his thing, um, which I only saw once. It was just me. Um, silent retreats. I'm cool with silence. I actually love silence. So definitely big chunks of silence and just listening. But there were other things that I that I brought with me in case they seemed like uh, what I wanted to integrate into my time. Uh, so it was three days up there. I did fast the whole time. And that was helpful just for clarity. Um, yeah, and the retreat center is a it's, it's heyday was it, Jung himself said that that retreat center is the place to go for a transformal, transformative theological and psychological experience where they would use Jungian principles with the gospel of Jesus over a 17 day retreat that people would come from all over the world to be a part of uh, up there. So their library has all kinds of books related to that. It's a really cool place. Yeah, what? Uh, Four Springs Retreat Center. Four Springs, Four Springs, yeah. Because there are four springs that kind of feed in. And they have a pool, and that was nice on a hot day. Other questions? Bill.
It's a great question. We'll find out. We'll find out. All right. Well, Trudy, on the very last slide of my teaching, uh, if you can pull that up, it's right after the Lord's Prayer and that PowerPoint thing. Uh, this is what is on uh, St. Patrick's breastplate. And right at the next slide after that one. There it is. Sorry, the print's so small. I thought it was going to be bigger. But this resonated with me a lot. Uh, and this has become one of my daily mantras. It's actually bigger than this. Um, there's, a, there's a part before this where he unpacks even more. Uh, but I resonate with Patrick because he was a guy that went into Ireland, you know, uh, where the dominant religion was not Christianity. And he figured out what their language was, what their beliefs were, and helped figure out how to communicate Christ to them in very powerful ways. By the way, that was one of the... I want, to, I want to celebrate you for, um, I don't think it was hard, but I think Waco was awesome uh, while she was here uh, for her time, which is great. <laughs> and I want to tell you that you've got to be one of the coolest churches to go for it. And that's a heads, hats off to the board for being cool with it, because uh, you, you trusted me that my friend, who happens to be a Zen Buddhist priest, would do an incredible job <laughs> in my absence. But let me tell you, it was actually a deeply... Uh, important discipleship thing for you. You may not have been aware of this, but it was. Not that we're trying to, con to convert you to Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or, or Sikhi, but, you know, the Apostle Paul, if you go back to what he did, he was conversant with all the religious traditions around him. It's what made him be able to have conversations. And so you just being more knowledgeable about these things, even if it's the tip of the iceberg, um, gives you so much more to just have a meaningful conversation uh, with people and understanding to be people of understanding and not people of fear. So that's a little aside. But thank you. Thank you to Waco because she'll probably watch this. Um, so grateful for her. I'm taking her out to lunch tomorrow to thank her for that. And I uh, look forward to hearing her impression of you, so I hope you didn't blow it. I'm sure you didn't. But anyway, uh, St. Patrick's um, breastplate uh, is what, what this is. So I would invite you to stand with me, and let's uh, say this, because this is a reality that meant a lot to me uh, as I was coming through a time of despair and dry bones. This is a daily reminder of what's happening in me all the time, even if I don't know it, what's happening around me, even if I don't know it, what's happening in the in people around me, even though I don't know it. Let's say it out loud together as our benediction. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me and woman, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Thank you for being awesome. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for your questions too.